Well, brothers and sisters, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of 2 Thessalonians. And our passage will be 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. Please stand with me as I read from the Word of God. The Word of God says this, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Well, many of us may like comforting quotes. We want to hear that everything will be okay in the end, that you'll be fine and everything will work out. And here are some cliche quotes about the end. John Lennon says, everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. Another, one, another person says, it might be tonight, tomorrow, or the next day, but everything is going to be okay. And another writes, even the, dar- even the darkest night will end and the sun will rise again. But brothers and sisters, as believers, we know that in the end, everything will not be okay. At least not for everyone. If you think that everything will be okay, everyone will be happy and good in the end and well, then perhaps you haven't read too much of the scriptures. Indeed, everything will, yes, be made right, It'll be okay in that sense, but it doesn't mean everyone will be okay. For example, how will things be okay for the Nashville shooter when she stands before the Lord? How are things okay for Hitler after murdering millions of Jews? How are things going to be okay for those who persecuted Christians in China, Iran, or Indonesia all their lives? How are things going to be okay for the average unbeliever who lived in sin and rebellion against God their whole life. The truth is, everything will not be okay for many. The reason being, Jesus will come back. He will make all things right, yes, but he will bring forth his righteous, condemning judgment upon all who do not trust in him in this life. There is an eternal hell and there are eternal consequences for unrighteousness and for those who reject God in this life. If there wasn't, then God would not be very just, would he? He must deal with sin. He must deal with unrighteousness. He's God. 
God's judgment is coming. It's a sure deal. Christ will come like a thief in the night. Christ will, will, will return one day, not as a humble servant, but as a conquering and vengeful king. Things will not be okay for many as they suffer under God's righteous wrath for all eternity. But the question is, is God's judgment righteous? Is his wrathful, punitive judgment upon unbelievers just? Is his purifying judgment upon believers just? Well, if you like main point summaries, here's my go. Here's my try at it. God's judgment is just, for he will afflict unbelievers in final judgment and grant relief to believers in glorification. God is just and righteous and in, in all that he does. And this is what Paul comes to show us today in our passage. He's just towards believers and he will be just towards unbelievers. You see, in our passage, Paul reminds and teaches the Thessalonian believers of the righteous judgment of God. God's condemning judgment is indeed coming in Christ for the disobedient, but it was all, also already present in the lives of the believing Thessalonians. Yet, not in a condemning way, but in a good and sanctifying way. And we'll get to that in a moment. But first, it's good to understand that the Thessalonians didn't live in a world too different than ours today. Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia, a Roman province. It was a prosperous trade center and it excelled in things like philosophy. And like many well-off and well-educated cities and regions of the world today, it was full of idols and worship, false worship and cults. Yet, as you can read about in Acts 17, Paul and Silas went there and they preached the gospel to these Thessalonians. And some of them came to faith. However, in light of the preaching of the gospel, riots and persecution also broke out against these new believers. They were going through times of trial, difficulty. For example, Acts 17.5 says, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, a Christian believer, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So the Jews were looking for Paul and Silas, but they couldn't find them, and instead they attacked and persecuted the Thessalonian believers. Paul and Silas had to flee from Thessalonica without giving the Thessalonians all the instructions that they wanted to give. These were new believers going through persecution for their faith. And furthermore, they still had much to learn. For example, these new believers were confused about the second coming of Christ because of all the false teaching present in the region. They were also confused because of all this persecution. Is this the end? Perhaps they asked, did Christ already come? Did, did he already return? Or when will he return? So consider Paul's heart for these new converts. He wanted to set them straight. And this is where we find ourselves this morning. Persecution, suffering, fear, confusion, all these things were present in this church. So Paul, in his love and care for them, writes 2 Thessalonians and addresses these issues. He encourages them and he gives them a correct understanding of the end. And we too should take heed of what he says. Well, with everything happening in the lives of the Thessalonian believers, you would think that they would barely be holding on that they would be complaining, that they'd be angry, that they'd be losing faith. But instead, we find that the opposite is true. In verses 3 to 4, the Thessalonians were doing well despite their circumstances. And we see here that Paul is glad. And what we see in these verses is a righteous boast amidst suffering. A righteous boast amidst suffering. 
Paul, in light of discovering the state of the Thessalonians, says in verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. As one notes, the, the right thing to do here was for Paul to go back to God and to give thanks for them. After all, it was God who was sustaining these believers, and therefore Paul gives thanks to God, as is right. But why does he thank God here? He thanks God because their faith is growing, and he says that the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Consider this, brothers and sisters. Even in the midst of persecution, their faith was growing. It was growing abundantly, and their love for one another was increasing. When things don't go our way, when life is difficult and uncomfortable, how often are we tempted to despair and to curse God, to blame him and forsake him? But here is an example for us to take heed of. Things were difficult for these believers. Persecution was increasing, jail, loss of money, separation from family. These could have all been realities for the Thessalonians. But their faith was growing abundantly. So we can infer then that their trust in the Lord was, not, was only strengthened during these trials. Their hope and dependence of, upon him grew stronger. This is the opposite of what the Jews probably desired for these Christians. The Thessalonians didn't shrink back from God, but they drew near to him. They continued to put their faith in the Lord. Isn't this what we ought to do, brothers and sisters, in the midst of trials and suffering? Believers are to run to the Lord in times of difficulty. Not away, not to themselves, but to the Lord. So surely then we see an example here of righteous suffering. This is how we ought to suffer when suffering comes. By putting our faith in the Lord as hard as it might be, growing in our faith. Turn to his word, turn to prayer, turn to the church when darkness comes. May your reading of the word increase, not decrease in trouble, in times of trouble. And furthermore, we see that their love for one another was also increasing. Again, you would think that persecution would only draw these believers to be introspective and to withdraw from community, to focus on themselves. But no, their love for each other increased. They cared for for each other. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 8, we see that Paul talks about the churches in Macedonia which may have included this church in Thessalonica. And he explains how they were generous even in severe affliction, even in extreme poverty. They committed themselves to the Lord and to supporting Paul even in their desperate situation. So clearly they loved God's people and they, were, they loved each other in seasons of great trial. And this love that they had for each other should have only affirmed to Paul and to the world of their genuine, authentic faith in God. For example, 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So what do we do when we suffer and go through trials? What do you do? Well, I hope you go to the Lord. Devote yourself to Him in faith. And as we do that, we can continue to love and support others. In other words, in suffering, in persecution and trials, there is hope to not be a couch potato, to not be useless for the kingdom of God, to not be paralyzed by the difficulty that has come upon you, upon us. This indeed is a great example of how to suffer well. We don't need to pray or desire suffering to come upon us, but if it does, well, it's an opportunity for more faith and trust in God, for more growth and to excel in our love 
for others. Therefore, in light of all this, Paul says in verse 4, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the affliction that you are enduring. They were an example. Paul took joy in them, and as another note, Paul's boast about the Thessalonians was also meant to encourage them, to give them hope, to encourage them to keep going, to persevere. Don't stop loving one another. Don't stop growing in your faith. There's this common idea that when you affirm and encourage a child for doing something that is right and good, it should help them. It should motivate them to continue doing something, doing what is right and good. Well, in a much greater way, Paul was boasting about them, making them an example in the churches of God. And this should have caused them to keep going, to spur them on, to keep fighting the good fight. Well, brothers and sisters, in application, I hope you know that as a church, as Redeemer Bible Fellowship, you are, you are all also a great blessing. As a, church, I th- as a church, I think many of you excel in being hospitable, in being kind and loving. Many of you know your Bibles quite well, and you seek to be obedient to the Lord. Many of you excel in reaching out to your neighbor, to those who are newer to the church. Some of you do this by regularly opening up your homes or by taking people out for lunch or by simply being observant on Sunday mornings to take note of those who are new. Many of you gladly meet the needs of others. When there's a nail in a tire, brothers are there to help. When a family is moving, boxes and moving blankets are ready to be given. When cars need oil changes, help is offered from brothers in our church. When someone needs a place to stay, many families here have spare bedrooms to offer. In seasons of difficult, difficulty and seasons of loss, our church family seems always ready to comfort and counsel. Even though many of you are not deacons yet, many of you serve as excellent servants of the church. Countless hours spent on AV, countless hours of free babysitting, countless hours of hosting and cooking for one another. Of course, there's always more to do. There's probably still a need for SEF workers and nursery helpers, for lunch volunteers. But I personally have been blessed by your love and service. I've been blessed by your kindness and hospitality, cooking for my family when we are sick, dropping off food, many aunties and uncles who are happy to take care of Ezra. What a love my family has known from you all. This is a church I would love to bring my non-Christian friends to. This is a church... I love to talk about to my friends back home. I wish more churches were like Redeemer. But the point I'm making is not to make it get to your heads, it's not so it gets to your heads, but to keep going. I'm encouraging you and I hope that you might continue to love one another, to to care for one another, to excel in your faith all the more. Well, this brings us now to verses 5 and 10 where Paul further expands upon the suffering and persecution that the church was going through. Yet from Paul's words here, we can understand that the persecution they were going through was ordained by God. He saw this persecution along with what was to come in the future as a righteous judgment. And this is our second point, a righteous judgment in verses 5 to 10. In verse 5, Paul writes, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. You see... God's judgment doesn't only, impl- doesn't only apply to unbelievers, and it doesn't only relate to condemnation. Rather, here in verse 5, the evidence or the this here that Paul is referring to is the persecution and affliction he just spoke about in verse 4. 
One author points to 1 Peter 4, 17 and 19, where we see something similar. Peter says in verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Yet this judgment here is a reference to the Christian suffering. And this judgment, according to one source, was not punitive, but purifying and cleansing. Suffering can be used to actually refine Christians. So in a similar way, this suffering or this persecution and affliction the Thessalonians were going through was God's judgment upon them. We have no reason to believe that it was for some sin they committed. No, rather, I believe it was for their own good. This was ordained by God himself. It wasn't for no reason. It wasn't purposeless. After all, in verse 5, we also see the result for this judgment upon the Thessalonians was that they would be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which they were suffering. There's a great result statement here that we can't miss. We can't miss it because when persecution, affliction, and suffering comes upon us, it's not for no reason. There is a great purpose. There will be a great result. It's for our good as believers. It's ordained by God himself. The Thessalonians were, weren't doing anything wrong, but God desires that their suffering would be a mark of dignity and honor. And furthermore, believers, including us, should expect some form of persecution for Christ in our lifetime, shouldn't we? Well, for example, Philippians 1.28 says, For it, is, it, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Acts 14.22 says, Though through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So how should we think about being worthy of the kingdom of God? Well, we know that our works and our actions, they can't save us. We're saved by faith alone and Christ alone. But God may use things such as suffering and persecution to, again, refine us, to make us fit for the kingdom. Well, first we can consider what a defining mark of God's people is. Well, a defining mark of believers is suffering and persecution for Christ. We can see this in the verses I just read. God's people go through difficulty in this life because that's how he ordained it to be. God's people suffer for Christ and this persecution, as one writer, writer says, brought firm evidence of their commitment to the gospel, of their genuine faith, and of the certainty of their inheritance. In other words, their suffering for the kingdom affirmed that they were bound for the kingdom. Since suffering is something that God's people go through. True believers who go through persecution ultimately stand firm as well. On the one hand, this suffering, I believe, produces holiness and it refines believers, but it is also a mark of a true believer. These things don't cause the Thessalonians to earn their salvation, but the suffering, it was shaping them to be fit for the kingdom. Well, when a soldier receives many medals of honor and color-coded stripes that they wear on their chest, it doesn't make them more of a soldier but it affirms to themselves and to others of who they are, of what they've done, of who they serve. All the things that they did to be awarded these badges and medals ide uh, ideally refined them. It made them stronger. It made them better soldiers. And furthermore, all their badges and medals make them worthy of the honor that their country gives them. Why? Well, it shows that they have done and gone through what they were meant to go through. Well, suffering and persecution for Christ was and is a mark of believers, and it refines them. It makes them more holy. It doesn't make them more of a Christian, but it makes them fit for the kingdom. Kingdom people enter the kingdom after much refining. 
It's part of God's plan. So indeed, I believe that we can infer that this judgment from God upon his believers, this persecution, it was righteous. It had a good purpose. It would have a good result. It was upright and just. However, in verse 6, we see that Paul gives us an explicit reason for why God's judgment of persecution upon believers was righteous. Paul says here, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. So here is the great reason, perhaps, or the ground for verses 3 to 4. Or you can think of this as a fact, a, a piece of truth regarding God's righteous judgment. According to verses 6 to 10, God's judgment is righteous because, or in light of the fact that these believers will one day be vindicated. It's because one day these believers will be vindicated. In the end, God will make all things right. He will bring his condemning and punitive judgment upon the unrighteous and specifically upon those who have afflicted his people. But not only that, he also will one day bring relief to his suffering children and to all his children in this world. That's why God's judgment is righteous. Isn't this what we see in verses 6 to 7? Paul says that God's judgment is righteous because, or since, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Yes. Then he says, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Well, brothers and sisters, what comfort can you give a faithful missionary amidst great persecution for their faith? What do you tell a Christian who has been treated unjustly by those who are against them and their faith? Well, one biblical thing you could say is that God will make all things right in the end. He will bring justice and vengeance against all who persecuted and afflicted his people in this life. And he will grant his people great comfort and relief in the kingdom when Christ returns. I believe Paul here is giving the Thessalonians great hope and comfort as well. Yes, it is a sobering passage, but he's saying these things for their hope. God will indeed make all things right. He does not overlook the injustice that his people have gone through in this world by the hands of sinful people. This is sobering news. This is, however, also good news to know that God will make things right. That he will bring his affliction and punishment upon those who deserve it. Who deserve it. You have to put yourself in the shoes of these persecuted believers for a second. It may be hard for us to understand why this is comforting, but imagine a life of persecution, a life of distress and pain from the hands of those who hate your faith. People who make life hard for you, who treat, treat you poorly, or who may physically hurt you and take away all your rights and freedoms. God will make it right. He does not overlook the sufferings of his saints. Every tearful cry from persecuted Christians in Iran, in Afghanistan, in Indonesia, it will be heard. It's heard. Every painful loss and difficult situation is seen by God. God is just. He will deal with those who, aff who afflicted his saints. And if he didn't, then he would not be a just God, would he? God is not evil to allow his people to suffer. He is not evil for allowing his children to go through trials and tribulation. But he is just and upright in his decrees and judgments. He will bring great affliction upon the disobedient, and he will bring relief for his obedient. It's just. He will make all things right in the end. 
Well, let's consider God's just affliction now upon the disobedient as we look at verses 7 to 9. Indeed, these verses portray, again, a sobering reality, don't they? But keep in mind that Paul is stating these things for our understanding, also even for our comfort and to display God's righteousness. God does not turn a blind eye to sin and evil, and that is actually a good thing. Well, in light of verse 7, we can ask, when will God repay and afflict those who afflicted his people? Well, verse 7 says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed. Christ will return, but he isn't returning as a humble servant this time, but as a conquering king. When he returns to judge, everyone will know. Paul says in verses 6 to 7 that God will repay with affliction those who afflicted God's people. When Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Jesus will be revealed from heaven and he will come with his mighty angels, it says. And as one author notes, Paul points the readers here to the revelation of Christ. That is to Christ who these Christians never saw with their own eyes, who we have never seen with our own eyes. He will one day be revealed. And not only to them, but to all who persecuted these Thessalonians. They too will see Christ. Christ will not be gone forever, but he's coming back. And this is a hopeful message for us. He will come back, and he will come from heaven, and he will come with authority, authority from God to execute judgment. So this isn't some small reveal, brothers and sisters, but it's the Messiah himself, the Lord of lords, a terrifying picture of coming judgment upon unbelievers. And to add to this great picture, Paul explains, he explains that Jesus will be revealed with his mighty angels. Paul's point, according to one, is that these angels will come with the Lord to execute his will as a judge to help bring forth divine judgment. Mighty angels with the Lord to do his will. Yet for unbelievers, it will be to bring forth judgment, not in a refining sense, but in a punitive sense, consequence, vengeance, and affliction. And if this picture wasn't already enough, this picture of judgment and terror is pushed even further as Paul says that Jesus will come in flaming fire. Consider Isaiah 6, 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke in flames of fire. Others understand this accompanying fire to be a picture of Jesus as the judge. Make no mistake, Jesus is coming back to judge. It will be great and it will be devastating for unbelievers. Paul is directing us to the fire of judgment that we can often see throughout scripture. Fire, though warm and cozy on a cold winter day, is not a picture of comfort that we see here. But it's rather a picture of divine judgment a terror and devastation from the Lord. Don't picture a warm fireplace. Picture a devastating fire. So brothers and sisters, the coming of Christ in final judgment will indeed be a, f- a fearful picture, a picture of terror. But who will it ultimately be terrifying for? It will be terrifying for all those, it says, who do not know God and for those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't this what we see in the next sentence of verse 8? Yes, Jesus comes with his mighty angels and terrifying fire and devastating judgment and terror, but don't miss this. He comes in this way with the purpose of inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. 
on the disobedient, on those who rejected the gospel of Christ. Consider once again the righteous judgment of God. Is this not part of his righteous judgment? Jesus will come as a judge, a judge who will afflict and punish. But this punitive judgment, this terror and affliction of Christ, it's for unbelievers. It's for those who deserve it. It's for those who refuse to turn from sin and to turn to Christ. For those who love the truth of themselves and who worship themselves. For all who remain in ungodliness, who suppress the truth of God. Everyone can clearly perceive God and his eternal power and no one has excuse before God. No one can plead ignorance. Humanity has rejected God. Everyone has dishonored him and exchanged the glory of images of mortal man uh, for images of mortal man, as Romans 1 says. Furthermore, just as we heard this morning, Romans 3 is clear that no one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks God. All have turned aside and no one does good. At least not in of themselves. Romans is true for believers, but the difference is that by God's grace, believers have turned away from sin and turned to Christ for forgiveness. However, here, unbelievers are stuck in their sin. They love their sin. They hate the light. They choose what is evil every day. They reject God of their own will, out of their own will. So, is God just just to bring forth his wrathful judgment on unbelievers? and those who are disobedient by choice? The answer is yes. Is God just to bring wrathful judgment on those who afflicted believers in this life? Yes. Is God just to bring judgment upon unrepentant serial killers and rapists? Yes. Is he just to bring his wrathful judgment upon Hitler and this past week's Nashville shooter one day? Yes. And is God just to bring forth his wrathful judgment upon the average Joe who rejected him in this life? Yes, because even an average Joe who rejects God is a person who has sinned against an infinitely holy God. Scripture is clear, the wages of sin is death, even for the average Joe. All sin deserves condemnation, whether you're Hitler or you're an average Joe. And those who reject Christ will have to pay for their sin themselves. This is the just reality of God. God has given us Christ to bear our sin and wrath. But those who don't know God, those who live in rebellion against God, those who reject the gospel, they will have to bear God's wrath themselves. And rightly so. God cannot let sin go unpunished. And consider now in verse 9 how unbelievers will suffer. Paul says in verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Punishment here means to pay the consequences for some action. But the punishment is eternal. There is no purgatory, brothers and sisters. There is only everlasting destruction for unbelievers, a type of destruction that goes on forever. The Bible makes it clear that this is not annihilation, but a punishment of eternal fire. The Bible makes it clear again that, it, that Matthew, for example, says eternal punishment. Jude 1.7 says punishment of eternal fire. Revelation 20 describes the lake of fire as a place of torment that lasts day and night forever and ever. And everyone not found in the book of life will go there. Mark 9 refers to hell as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. There is a final destination for unbelievers. 
call it hell, call it the lake of fire, call, call it the unquenchable fire. It will be eternal, it will be everlasting, it will be never ending. And it, the ESV makes it sound as if God's presence will be away from unbelievers in hell. And this could be a correct translation. Instead, however, you can translate the Greek word here as away from, the, uh, the word that translated, translated as away from, you could also translate it as out from. In other words, God's presence won't, won't be completely missing, but as another notes, it will be from God's presence or the source of his presence that the Lord brings forth his judgment. The CSB translation says this, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. The Lord is the one who brings this about and his wrath and might will be present for all eternity upon unbelievers. This is an awesome, terrifying judgment, brothers and sisters. It's scary and it's real. I'm not downplaying this. This isn't a message on missions, nor is this passage about missions and evangelism. But let me just say in application, go and proclaim Christ to everyone you can. Tell your mom, tell your dad of Christ, tell your friends and coworkers of the good news of Christ that they might escape this terrible and just judgment, this eternal fire, this eternal torment and suffering that awaits all who reject God, go plead with your unbelieving friends and family today to not reject this good news of Christ. Plead with God to soften your, the hearts of your loved ones and to accept and receive the gospel before it's too late. Judgment is coming, but the good news is that 2,000 years ago, God placed judgment upon Christ already, didn't he? Through the cross. We sin against our creator God and we deserve death, but instead God placed his wrath and punishment on Christ when he went to the cross for all his people. God crushed his own son, he died, yet he rose again so that all who trust in Christ and his life, in his death and resurrection, all who turn from sin, all who turn to Christ can have this rightful wrath diverted and put onto Christ instead. God must indeed punish sin, brothers and sisters, but he offers to do that in Christ for you this morning. So if you are not a believer this morning, then you need to see Christ who takes the judgment of God for you. If only you would believe in him. So I beg you and I plead with you to trust in Christ before it is too late for forgiveness of sins, for eternal life. If you reject him, if you disobey him in this life, then you will have to pay for your sins yourself. And it's a devastating thing. Well, as we come back to our passage, of course, Paul doesn't end here. Though our passage is terrifying for unbelievers, it is ultimately, like I said, hopeful and comforting for believers. When Christ comes, it will be devastating judgment for the unrighteous. But as verse 10 shows, the day of Christ will be a marvelous and joyful day for all believers. In verse 10, we see that Christ also comes to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled among all who have believed because Paul's, te Paul's testimony regarding Christ was believed. The day of Christ will be a day of great praise and boasting in Christ. It will be a day to glory in our Redeemer. All believers will marvel at Christ. Marvel here, it doesn't mean to be surprised, but it means more to admire, to respect, to honor. 
We will be before the Lord to honor him. And isn't this already a great reward and relief? To be with Christ at last, to see him face to face and to boast in him, to honor him. We will know that his judgments are good and right. We will know that he has great saving power. Remember, once again, these persecuted Christians in Thessalonica were prob- probably eagerly awaiting the return of Christ for justice to be brought upon their enemies and upon those who persecuted them. And I would not be surprised if they, along with many persecu- persecuted Christians today, cry out, come Lord Jesus. They wanted him to return. The day will come and all the waiting and persecution for Christians will have been worth it. This will be a day of rest and relief for all saints. Christ will be there. And, it, and verse 10 makes clear that all who have believed will be there. So, brothers and sisters, God will indeed make all things right. He will bring forth his wrathful judgment upon unbelievers and on all who persecuted his saints. And he will bring relief and reward for his people. Justice will be served, and we'll touch upon this a little bit more, but indeed, this is a sobering reality on the one hand, but nevertheless, a message of great hope. If you are a believer today, there is hope for you. Christ will come again, and he will vindicate his saints, and he will relieve his people. Well, we will return to this theme of relief later on, but let's move on to the last section in our verse today, in our passage today, in verses 11 to 12 where Paul desires and prays for these saints. In, verse, in these verses, we see a righteous desire, a righteous desire, our third and last point. Parents, what do you desire for your kids? What is your ultimate desire for them? Is it college, a good job, a good family? What's, the, what's your greatest desire for yourself? Well, Paul here doesn't say in light of all that he has just spoken about already that he desires us now to live a comfortable and easy life. He doesn't say that he desires for persecution to go away in this age even. He doesn't say YOLO. He doesn't tell us to live hedonistic lifestyles. No, rather, he desires and he prays that God would make these believers worthy of his calling in light of all that he has said. In other words, he wants God to continue working in their lives, even if that includes persecution and suffering. He wants God to do whatever it takes to make us fit for the kingdom. He wants us to live as kingdom people. Christ is coming again, and his just judgment will accompany him. Therefore, how we live now matters. Matters. How have you been living in light of Christ's coming judgment? Paul wants God to fulfill, it says, or to complete their every resolve to do good or for good. Paul here may be speaking to their intentions, to their desire of goodness, as one commentator says. He is asking in verse 11 that God fulfill the Thessalonians' desire or intentions for goodness. In other words, he may be praying that God would really complete or bring to fullness their desires and intentions for good. And furthermore, Paul prays that God would fulfill their every work of faith or the work produced by faith, as you can also understand. Some suggest that their desire for goodness would lead to tangible works, or that there would be progress from will to deed. He didn't want the Thessalonians to stop desiring good or to stop their works of faith, but he wanted God to stand for them, to help them continue on, to be fulfilled, to complete their work. 
Persecution, suffering, trials, and difficulty are not an excuse to stop pursuing what is good. It's not an excuse to stop doing what is good. It is not a time to be, like I said, paralyzed by self-pity or constantly self-centered in introspection. Christ is coming again and we need to live as kingdom people to do good work in this world. In faith, can you care for the needs of other suffering saints? Can you continue to love the church, serve the church, bring the gospel to the nations? Do good by being ethical and diligent office workers. Do good by being hospitable, opening up your homes, by loving your neighbors, by being salt and light in this world. Some of us may need to think less about ourselves and more about others. We know the Lord, so how can we work so that others can also know him? Christ leads and guides us so we don't have to be afraid of sharing the gospel. You desire others to know the gospel, that's great. Well, go share the gospel with someone now. Do you make enough time in your schedule to do good, to serve the church, to serve the lost in your cities? Do you make a plan with your family to meet a tangible need in our community? Do you give, plan to give childcare or make time to evangelize or make time to cook for other families? Or do you spend more time planning your vacations, traveling, shopping, playing basketball, playing pickleball, or playing video games? You have a desire to do good, great. May God give you more of that good desire. And may he also cause you to do good work and to do something by faith. Indeed, this is an important section of our text. But what's the purpose here for living kingdom-centered lives? What's the purpose of having good desires and works of faith? Well, in verse 12, we see, again, a great purpose, and it's uh, to glorify the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in believers. Again, any good intention or good work produced by faith, it's from God. So even in our good intentions and work, God is the one who gets the glory, isn't he? Living lives worthy of God's kingdom, living as kingdom people who obey God means something. It honors him. It shows the world where our allegiance is. When a child lives and acts in a way that their parents call them to, it honors them. When a soldier fights for his country by choice, he shows the worth of their country. He honors his country in service. When we as believers live the way God tells us to live by faith, we too then honor the Lord. We show that he is great and we show that he is someone worth obeying and following. It should be our heart's desire to do this, to marvel at him. However, lastly, consider how Paul also says in verse 12, glorified in you and you in him. Indeed, we can glorify Christ now as we live as kingdom people, yes, but this text, even from verse 5, brings forth an eschatological understanding. As others know, there is a future glorification that Paul is referring to for both Christ and for his people. Remember, those who persecuted the Thessalonians dishonored Christ. These Jews who persecuted Christians rejected Christ as the Lord. They did not acknowledge him as they should have. And furthermore, they dishonored the Thessalonians by persecuting them. But one day, God will make all things right. Christ, when he returns, will be seen by all and everyone will know who he truly is. His people will glorify him. They will give him glory, give his name glory. And furthermore, his people will be honored by Christ as well. All the slander, all the persecution, all the difficulty of this life will be worth it when believers see Christ face to face. While the world ridiculed believers for the faith, Christ will say, well done, good and faithful servant. As one author says, one day Christ will publicly honor his people. And that was a big deal for these Thessalonians as all their life they've been ridiculed and dishonored. 
but the tables will turn. Justice will come, and even more, we will receive our new resurrection bodies in Christ. We will be made like Christ. God's people will be glorified in Christ. They will be publicly honored in him as the Lord. Christ will honor his people, and he will grant them their glorified bodies. So again, brothers and sisters, this is just a point to draw home that all will be made right. And this will all be done according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. All our good works, the glory that is coming for us, it's all by God's grace. Praise and honor and glory is due to him. So can you see now why rest and reward is coming for those of you who stand firm? Can you see why you need to continue and persevere in this life? Because glory is coming. Christ will, re- will return and we need to live as kingdom people. So in application and in closing, can you continue on as a faithful believer in this life? Can you stand firm in days of great persecution and trial and difficulty? Perhaps some of you are going through great trial and persecution. Perhaps some of you have gone through slander and people have spoken against you. Yet one day, every wrong committed against you, all the trial and persecution of this life, it will be worth it when Christ returns. He will make all things right. He will bring forth his justice on unbeliever and he will bring forth his relief and his reward for his believers. Praise God for his righteous judgment now and for his righteous judgment to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that indeed you are a righteous and just God, that even in your judgment upon believers and unbelievers, you are righteous. And if it wasn't for your righteousness, we would have no hope So God, I pray that we might see your goodness in this text and that we might await the day when Christ will come again to take us home, to give us relief and reward. And we pray that all of us as believers would stand firm. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.